So uh, I asked Karen to pick the psalm this morning. So she picked Psalm 139. And after we read 139, we're going to read 150. And then I get to pick 150. <laughs> psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. So, so, t- so tell me why you picked this song. Well, I liked it because I was telling Dave, because it's it, God knows you no matter what. Wherever you're at, there's nowhere you can go where he's not there. And when I used to scuba dive, I'd go down deep to the depths of the ocean, and there's all these amazing creatures down there. And God put them there, you know, when hardly anybody gets to see them. And there was an exhibit at OMSI that had the first man sub to go down to the depths, right down where they had the heat vents, and it was like, there's so much pressure and so much heat, all the scientists said, nothing could live down there, it's a desert. And so this guy goes down there, and he's man, and he's talking to the scientists up above, and he goes, didn't you guys say there's nothing going to be down here? Oh yeah, it's too hot, too much pressure. Then what's all this life doing here? And he and there's a video of Gomzi showing what he saw. And there's all these little delicate looking creatures running around. There's little plant things that look like little flowers that bloom out, you know. And there's all this stuff. And I'm thinking, ah, God put that there. <laughs> you know, He can do anything in the depths, in the heights, no matter what. He's there. So that's why I was there. How precious. Also, are your thoughts to me, O oh God, vast as the sum of them? If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. So, the Lord is not only present in the heavens and the earth, and in the deepest, most part of the earth, but He's also present with us. Actually, desires us. We are the. It says in another psalm, we are the apple of His eye the center of his focus. Um, not that it's all about us. In fact, it's not. It's all about him. But that uh, it helps explain God's deep love for us. And then you get to this interesting part of this psalm, verses uh, 19 through 22, uh, where David says, Fry those evil guys. <laughs> Slay the wicked, O oh God. Uh, and why... So this is what they call an imprecation. Uh, why, why do you think that's in there? I mean, I, and this always disturbed me as I'm reading through a psalm and it's just telling about the love of God and, and how cool he is and all of a sudden you get to this imprecation part where uh, there's this, you know, 
it seems like, man, that can't be the heart of God. We'll slay the wicked this way, not get show any mercy. Here we have a gracious, merciful God, and David's saying, show no mercy, wipe them out. Showing how he really feels, he could really talk to God, God already knew it. Indeed. <laughs> Put it to words here. So, God just wants us to talk to him. He indeed. knows what our heart is. The good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Here's where I am. I don't and, like it. And in many ways, it mm-hmm. it uh, is revealing David's heart, uh, how he's aligned with God, and that he agrees with God um, about evil and sin, and that evil and sin have no place in God's kingdom, and uh, ultimately will be dealt with. And David is agreeing with God in this sense, and that's. Uh, Sometimes when you see these type of uh, imprecatory passages and psalms, um, we need to keep in mind that indeed it is the heart of the psalmist, so it's, it's not the heart of God necessarily, but uh, a lot of times it's showing alignment with God and how God hates sin. Even though he loves sinners, he hates sin. And his final um, appeal is, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Uh, incredible statements from David about how um, the Lord is impacting his life. thought we'd also read Psalm 150 this morning, and whoever gets there first, like it, read it out, get loud, because this is, this is our praise to the Lord this morning. God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals and praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Amen. So it's interesting that Psalm starts out with, uh, in the wisdom literature, the, the uh, so I, I kind of view two types of perspectives in a different genre of the Bible. One of the perspectives is what I call prophetic. It's God speaking to humanity. He's revealing himself, his person, his nature and character, his purpose and plan. Um, and uh, his appeal to humanity to join him. So that's, that's a prophetic perspective. But then the, the uh, flip side of that is the human perspective back to God in response to his revelation. So Psalms is what they call wisdom literature. It's that, that uh, perspective back uh, towards God. And Psalms starts out with uh, uh, a statement about how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? And it goes through and it talks about the way, the way of righteousness, which is what we were designed for. And it ends with this, praise the Lord. Praise him in every possible way you can think of. And that we should be rejoicing. And I, I love the wisdom literature for that reason, because it's very, uh, it's very relational for us. We can relate to the people who wrote these different passages whether it be Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Job um, or James, we understand that that uh, wisdom perspective, sharing, crying out with your heart to God, is um, it's where we live every day. And it's a response to God's revelation. So I really appreciate that. But we're not going to actually be looking at the wisdom passage this morning. So uh, there's a little bit bigger class this morning. Um, we finished Daniel, and I'll just tell you a little bit about the progression that we've had in this class since I uh, have been in here. So I joined when Sean was teaching through Zechariah, and uh, and then he invited me to to uh, teach. Kind of wanted to find out if I what my uh, theology and doctrine was. Wanted to find out if I was Baptist enough. So uh, he had me uh, teach on a trial basis, and so I taught through the letters of Peter. 
And uh, I don't know if you recall when we went through that, uh, Peter, First Peter especially, is uh, it's from a prophetic perspective. Um, and First Peter is about submission. I'll just give you one word uh, what it's about, submission. And we looked at what submission means. Submission is when you place yourself through the freedom that God has given you, you use that freedom to place yourself under the authority of another. In this case, the authority of the true king. So it made sense that we would go from uh, a discussion in scripture about submission to the true king to revelation about the true king. So we went from Peter, letters of Peter, into Samuel. And we spent quite a bit of time working through Samuel because Samuel... Um, really introduces the concept of the human king as a delegate for the divine king. It sets the framework for what we understand as Messiah. Messiah, meaning the anointed one, is that one in the Godhead who um, has authority and dominion over the kingdom of God, over the expanse of God's domain. And so we see that the formation of that as uh, both a religious thought among the, the Hebrew peoples, but also it's setting the, the groundwork for God's redemptive plan. So as we look through Scripture, and, and I think Scripture has an overarching theme to it, and it's uh, um, about the revelation of God's redemptive plan. God doesn't tell us everything. In fact, he says that, he says there's lots of stuff I'm not going to tell you, but this is the stuff I am going to tell you, and it's for your good and for your benefit, um, it's for your blessing. And so that redemptive plan of God is laid out starting in Genesis, and it proceeds through an expression that we understand as covenant. So we see the first covenant with, uh, with Adam, and that's a covenant with all of mankind through Adam, uh, through what we would understand as uh, kind of headship the human race. We see then a further covenant with Noah and that that covenant is about so the first covenant is about that God will redeem us. It's a promise that God's not going to leave us in a place of destruction. And the second covenant that we see is, and this is a particular type of language expression that is understood by humanity the idea of a covenant. And uh, the second one is, is found in uh, the account with Noah where God promises to withhold judgment of uh, the sin and the depravity that has become the human condition. He promises to withhold judgment until the end. So part of his redemptive plan is he's going to send a redeemer and he's going to withhold final judgment um, until that redeemer has the opportunity and we have the opportunity to respond to that redeemer and come under his, um, his wing. And we see that kind of language used in several places. He actually provides a covering for us. And we understand when we talk about the atonement, the idea of covering. Covering for our sin. And more than just that, actually uh, redeeming us and giving us a new heart. So we see that progression um, from withholding judgment to the point of what we call the Mosaic Covenant. Which talks about um, the requirement on humanity of that covenant. And that any time that... God expresses who he is and what his kingdom looks like. And what I would say is that the law is an expression of what God looks like and what his kingdom looks like. What it looks like to be a citizen in the kingdom of God. And when that is expressed prophetically, um, along with that, you have an, an implicit requirement. So, um, and it becomes explicit in the Mosaic Covenant. In that in order to be in relationship with God, you have to be holy as he is. And that that's just, by design, the only way that you can be in God's presence is to be according to God's design. But that one of the key features of God's creation is that he gave us uh, freedom. He gave us the ability to choose. Now, I won't say that that's unlimited choice. It's limited. Um, but nonetheless... We have the ability for true free choice to choose God. And that in his, in his wisdom, he determined that that was uh, good and necessary. 
right? So what we see in God's creation, we don't see any unnecessary things. Even though we look at certain aspects of God's creation, we say, wow, that's really weird. Why did God do that? And then what happens is, is as man and his science and discovering thinks that this is unimportant and he ignores it, tries to change it, and when we find out 50 years later that, oh no, that was really important, you know, we just destroyed an ecology or something, um, because there's nothing that is missing or unimportant in God's creation, right? So we understand that everything is necessary um, or God wouldn't have spoken it. That's his decree. And uh, within that, we understand that he also, with, with decree, comes uh, freedom or permission. So we understand a decorative will, a decreed will of God, and we understand a permissive will of God. And that that's what that Mosaic covenant is about. It's about our responsibility to God as he reveals himself uh, to us. And what happens is, as we go from Adam to Noah to Moses, then we get to Samuel, the prophet. And Samuel, the prophet, again, prophetic voice, um, in that passage, it isn't actually Samuel speaking, it's Nathan, uh, the prophet, but it's in the, what, the collection of Samuel. Um, there's another covenant made. And it's the covenant about what that uh, true king will look like. So we understand we're seeing a formation of the concept of king and kingdom in Samuel and this concept of Messiah. And all of a sudden it becomes perfectly formed in a delegate king uh, on the earth that is his delegation is to express the perfect will of the divine king in heaven. And that there is a promise that that delegation will actually become the divine king. That there will be a human descendant that will perfectly express the will of God. Such that if you uh, were to be in the presence of this human descendant, you would actually be in the presence of God. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. Right? And so what's happening is Messiah is revealed in Samuel. And as we move through uh, the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, we think that's called the Davidic covenant. It's the covenant of the becoming Messiah, the eternal king. And as you move through prophetic literature, you come to uh, a final covenant that's made with man. So you see this progression happening. The final covenant we call the new covenant. And that God recognizes that the nature of depravity is such that we become so twisted that we become unable to actually choose good. And that the only way that we can actually truly be redeemed is to have a new heart. But that requires heart surgery. Right? The old heart has to be taken out and a new heart has to be given. And that this is a mystery to us because we don't understand how we can actually physically be in this body. And yet God redeems us. And we understand this picture as it's expressed in the New Testament. So what we did is we went from Samuel into Hebrews. Because Hebrews gives us a really good theological framework of what that redemption actually looks like as it applies to us. Right? We went through Hebrews and we were looking at that and uh, you know, lots of good nuggets in there and one of the things we understand is that um, the whole cultic practice of the Hebrew nation was intended to express what God was actually doing in creation, um, in heaven, in order to bring us into his presence. And Hebrews says that in very uh, high and difficult to understand language in some instances. <clears throat> we then go, we went from Hebrews, we went back into the Old Testament. We took a look at Daniel. And uh, one of the reasons I felt that that was an appropriate place to go after Hebrews was because uh, Daniel, from the prophetic voice again, is expressing the actual coming of Messiah. Right. So we saw in Daniel what sovereignty, the sovereignty of God actually looks like. And what Tim asked me to do was, it's like, okay, I understand this overarching theme of sovereignty and the revelation of Messiah in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Um, he said, now how does that apply to us where we live? 
And if he was here this morning, I was going to give him specific verses so that we can mm -hmm. see the practical application of that, not just the theological application of that. And uh, maybe we can, again, get to that when, when Tim is back with us. But, so we're, we went through Daniel, and uh, we get to a point, what do we do next? Right, so that's this morning. What do we do next? It seems to me, if we're looking at this logical progression, we're looking at a heart of submission to the understanding of uh, covenant and king, the prophet, the priest, and the king, to the New Testament fulfillment of that, to the actual revelation of when Messiah would walk into Jerusalem, the next thing to look at would be one of the Gospels. Right? Doesn't that sound like a place that you would end up? After this long journey, you would actually look at the direct account of the eyewitnesses to God's plan from before history was even begun, before uh, creation was spoken into existence, God knew what this redemptive plan was to the point where it actually becomes actual history. Something that we uh, commemorate, we memorialize, we memorialize this in our communion, which is communion means that relationship with God in Christ. Right? We memorialize it um, in the celebration of Easter, the resurrection. It's still memorialized in the celebration uh, in the cultic practice of the Hebrews peoples in Passover and the festival of booths. That we understand that those are pictures of what God is doing in redemption. So I figured we should end up in a gospel. Does that sound good to y'all? Yes, no? Sounds like a plan. Because I, pardon? Sounds like a plan. Sounds like I know that there's going to be. I thought that some are complaining. <laughs> well, there was some talk about, well, maybe we could go into like the Corinthian letters or something like that. And I thought, well, we could take a look at Pauline literature. And if we were going to do that, I'd probably start in Galatians and then maybe um, work our way through that. But it seems to me that before you get to the kind of um, technical details of the Christian walk, you should know what that Christian walk, how it starts. And so that's why I was thinking we would uh, start in a gospel. So... Uh, there are four Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm going to give you a binary choice this morning. You can choose either Matthew or John. So I'm going to look at it for a show of hands, and I'm going to have Bob count, and we're going to do this democratically. Um, who wants to study through Matthew? Raise your hand. Okay. Who would like to study through John? Okay, well, I can see that John's in the majority. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should, maybe I should give you a little, little preview. Not that I'm biased. I actually, here's, here's my stack of crib notes on John. Here's my stack of crib notes on Matthew. That's just because um, my studies in Matthew are a lot more in my margin notes. Um, but uh, both. Uh, I've done in-depth study on both. Um, Matthew, just to give you uh, the overarching theme, is that Jesus is Messiah, fulfillment of promise. And so you'll understand a lot of the covenant themes that come out in Matthew. So a lot of people, and the audience there is a Jewish Christian audience, so they, there's a lot of understanding of Judaism. And what I will say about Matthew is that it has the longest um, discourse on the law in the New Testament uh, and helping us understand what the law is. Some people call that the Sermon on the Mount. Right? It's actually not a single sermon. Um, Matthew is organized into five discourses or teachings of Jesus and these form the, uh, uh, they call it the Kergama, the, um, the, the, uh, areas of organization of the gospel message. Um, and so I, I love being able to teach on that because it helps us understand the law, because law comes up a lot. Paul's going to talk about law. What does law mean? Um, and I'll just give you, since we're not going to do Matthew, um, I'll just tell you this, that the law of God is equal to the will of God. 
that which God expresses as his not just desire and permissive will, but his decree and decorative will is the law. Um, so what we find in the Bible about the law is descriptive rather than prescriptive. In other words, this isn't a program for you to hit the check boxes. It's not a punch list for you to be righteous in God's sight. Rather, it's a declaration of what righteousness looks like. And that's what you find, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. But since we're not going to look at that, we're going to take a look at John. So let me go ahead and file these notes away. And, uh, and maybe we'll get to Matthew at a later date. So um, what do we know about John? We need to ask the, the uh, who, what, why, when, where uh, questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with uh, the who question. So when we look at the, uh, the Gospel of John... Actually, a good body of work in the New Testament is written by this character called John. Um, we understand that John wrote the Gospel of John, at least that's what I'm going to uh, suggest. Um, he wrote the letters that we titled 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, and I'm going to propose that he's actually the author of those. Um, uh, history and, and uh, tradition would say that he is the author of Revelation, um, and I'm going to propose that as well. So John had a lot to uh, a lot to to say to us. And what do you so so who is this guy, John? He was sent from God. Pardon? He was sent from God. He was sent from God. Which John? <laughs> Both John, probably. Brother of James and son of Zebedee. He was he was a brother of James, uh, who was um, one of the twelve, and John was one of the twelve. And we're going to find out that John is actually um, with Andrew is one of the first people that actually understands that Jesus is Messiah. Probably not the first of the disciples to meet him, but. Uh, I've heard it suggested that uh, he has a bit of a, a, a growth in his personality, as it were, from the, his youth to his old age. In his old age, his, well, he most frequently says, little children love one another. Yep. And in his youth, he and his brother James, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. That's right. I, I, I kind of picture them hanging around gas stations black leather jackets. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is Johnny Johnson. He's got his his, uh, his leathers on uh, with the, you know, uh, studs that are stainless steel and uh, he's got his Harley over there and he's, you know, hanging out. That's that's Johnny Johnson. And his brother Jimmy, Johnny, and, Johnny and Jimmy Johnson. These are two guys you don't want to mess with, right? And to pay the bills, uh, they're fishermen. In fact, their their whole family is fishermen. And I'll show you where they're actually from. Uh, I don't have my glasses on. Is this actually in focus or out of focus? That's out of focus. Yeah, the top there. Okay. So let me, let me zoom out. I'll tell you a little bit about John. Um, so John is, is from this uh, family. Uh, their surname is Zebedee. Uh, and they're from... Uh, this was working earlier. Uh-oh. Come on, baby. <laughs> there we go. Okay. So what you see in this picture here... This area right here that I'm outlining with the pointer is what we would think of as modern-day Israel, right? And that was uh, pretty much the area of Israel in that day as well. Uh, this northern part uh, down through, this is the Sea of Galilee right here. This is the Rift Valley, the Jordan River. Runs actually the Jordan River starts up here, this little area here next to where it says Syria, little dot there. I don't even see it. That's uh, Caesarea Philippi, and that's the headwaters of the Jordan River. 
the Jordan River actually comes shooting out of the rock there. It's pretty spectacular. Uh, and then it flows into the Sea of Galilee, which is just about sea level in elevation. And then it goes into this rift valley, and it just keeps dropping and dropping and dropping until it gets to this area of water collection called the Dead Sea. So this is the lowest point on Earth right here that you can actually stand on. And if you go out on the surface of the water, it's about 425 meters uh, below sea level. So that's pretty low. Um, more than 1,200 feet below sea level. Uh, so where John was from is he's from this area right at the north of the Sea of Galilee, an area called Bethsaida, and this was a fishing village. There were some other fishermen from there too. A guy by the name of uh, Peter and Andrew came from there. These were other fishermen. And you read about them in the Bible. And when we started in the letters of Peter in my introduction, that's that Peter. right? So Peter and Andrew... Uh, John and James and their families are from this little city here, which I'm going to blow up now. So this kind of gives you the big picture where they're from. This whole area here uh, is called Galilee. Uh, the northern part is a very fruitful part of uh, Israel. So just to kind of show you the topology a little bit, you'll see this little spit coming out right here. This is a, a mountain right here. It's called, called Mount Carmel. And it kind of provides a rain shadow effect. And this valley right here, uh, in the rain shadow of Mount Carmel, is the Jezreel Valley. And uh, so a lot of Hebrew history occurs in this area, in the Jezreel Valley. And just on the, the north side of that valley is a, a ridge here, and I'm going to zoom in on it. And uh, we understand that as the, the ridge that the Nazareth is on. So, I don't know if you can see a little bit better here. You'll actually see kind of a darker area here, and there's a dot right there. That's Nazareth. And up here is Bethsaida, a little bit uh, more clear, and Capernaum. Uh, what I can say is, is that in this area, this is the main trade route coming down. So, if you wanted to get uh, your goods from the north in Syria, down to this part of the country, down here is Jerusalem, um, or into these valleys here, this be, is the area of the Decapolis, um, and this would be the area of the Ammonites, today modern-day Jordan, of which the capital of Jordan is Amman, Jordan, named after those Ammonites of history. Um, so this whole area here is a place where you want to sell your goods, right? And so you've got goods, you want to bring them in from the coast, you want to bring them in from the north, so anything coming in, uh, I'm going to zoom back out again, just to kind of give you a larger scope picture here. Anything that would be coming from the Saudi Arabian Peninsula across the desert route, and the Nabataeans controlled that trade route to bring things that were really important, like spices, um, so they would bring those from the east, and probably the wise men came in from the east uh, upon one of these uh, trade routes. And then there's a highway that runs along here called the King's Highway. This is the Dead Sea. And this is the Jordan River Valley, and so there's kind of a natural, not a highway, but it's a, a natural way that people would uh, travel because you, you know, it's kind of a low spot. And you wouldn't actually travel in the bottom of the valley because there would be too much uh, overgrowth and things like that because the river's there. So you'd travel on the edges of this valley. And there's a natural kind of corridor there. And today, you'll actually find a road there that traverses uh, this valley. Or doesn't traverse it, it runs the, the length of it. And then there are different uh, ways into the land. So this area here, just below Mount Carmel and kind of this hill country right here, this is the hill country of Ephraim. So when the people came into the land to settle it, this was given to the tribe of Ephraim. Um, very important cities are located here. Uh, Shechem is located here. Shiloh, or Shiloh, uh, where the first tabernacle was set up, is located there. Um, when Jacob first came into the land, he came into Shechem. Uh, he ended up setting up an altar in this area here called Bethel which is uh, just up, if you come up one of these pits. So this is a very strategically important area, uh, and it's separated from the southern part by this area in here called the Benjamin Plateau. 
These are names that you'll see as you're reading through the Bible and they'll come up. All of this still existed in Jesus' day. This area here that was uh, historically Ephraim um, was conquered by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians came in from the north um, and uh, from Nineveh and they came down and they basically followed this route straight down, cut over to here, came down through the coastal plain through a cut here, and then came down this route through here and then came up these different entries into the hill country and completely conquered that area. They totally destroyed it um, and they took the people out. And then because they didn't want to leave uh, and they brought new people in, what happened is if you read through the accounts in, in the Old Testament, when the uh, new people were settled here, um, they were getting eaten by uh, lions and tigers and bears. So the Assyrians went through and, and brought some of the um, people back in because they said, well, we must not be pleasing the gods of the hills here. Let's bring people back in. Well, those people that came back in kind of mixed with uh, the people that weren't from there to begin with, and they uh, formed a what they call a syncretic religion. They had some of the religion of the uh, Canaanite peoples and other peoples from around that, that Assyria had conquered, they had some of those religious practices, including idolatry, and then they had some Jewish practices, which uh, included the first understanding of the law, the covenant through Moses. And so those people with this syncretic religion became what are called the Samaritans. And so, and the reason they're called the Samaritans is because one of the kings, if we read through the account of the kings, uh, made his hometown in a, an area called Samaria, which is a city called Samaria, which is right in here. And so this whole area became the Samaritans, and the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans because they didn't have a pure religious practice. It's not that what they uh, had in their religion was totally untrue because they included uh, the law, the first five books of the Bible, as part of their religious practice. Um, and they actually practiced sacrifice, but they didn't practice sacrifice the way that God ordained it to occur. Uh, in his temple, on his altar, according to his ordinance. Rather, they set up their own ordinance, they set up their own altar, and they did that on Mount Gerizim, uh, and they still do this today. You can go there today, and there's still a place where they offer their annual sacrifice on Mount Gerizim, uh, and it actually looks down over the ancient city of Shechem. Right? So it's still there today. It was there in Jesus' day, and you don't walk through there <laughs> if you're a good Jew. You don't go through Samaria. So what you do is you come down to this Jezreel Valley and you cut through this little spit here. This is called the Herod Valley. And you get down into the Jordan Valley and you go all the way around the Samaritans. And then you come up by way of Jericho to Jerusalem. So if you wanted to connect the northern part of Galilee to the southern part of Judea, you couldn't do it through the land of the Samaritans. You had to go around. So... Um, John, James, Peter, Andrew are Jews living in Galilee. The religious practice, the center of their religion is down here in Judea. And uh, we've been going through the Old Testament as part of our Route 66, and we understand what happened in Judea. Uh, the Assyrians came in and they conquered this northern part of Israel, um, but they didn't conquer the southern uh, kingdom of Judah completely. They partially conquered it. And then God gave King Hezekiah relief um, and the Assyrians withdrew. But later on because the people didn't, couldn't figure out what their cultic practice was about that it was about God. So they kept introducing their own uh, understanding of what's good and what's right rather than God's understanding of what's good and right and practicing adultery. So God brought in the Babylonians and they smashed them. Right? So when they were rebuilt, they were rebuilt only as this province under the Persian kingdom of Judea. The northern kingdom was all considered Samaria. And then as that intertestamental period progressed and the uh, Persian Empire disintegrated, was replaced by the, the Grecian Empire and then the Roman Empire, this separated a little bit more so that this northern area became distinct as Galilee, middle area as uh, 
Samaria, and then the southern area as Judea. And that's where we actually get the name Jew from, is from the remnant that returned to Judea. So last week when we were looking at Nehemiah uh, in the main service, we were looking about those exiles that returned here to Jerusalem to rebuild the Judean uh, province as part of the Persian Empire. And that was God's part of God's plan of deliverance because we understand that Messiah was going to actually enter Jerusalem um, and be presented at the temple um, as our sacrifice, the sacrifice for sin, atonement, not just for the Jewish nation, but for the whole world. And so that had to be preserved, right? So if I was a Jew, I would have a lot of confidence knowing God's plan. So a lot of the prophetic... Uh, work that we see is about encouragement for the Jews. It's like, hang on. God's got a plan. He's got a program. Well, these guys up here in northern Galilee, even though they were good Jews and they would occasionally make a pilgrimage down here, maybe for the festival of booths to Jerusalem, um, for, the, for the most part, they were disconnected from Judea. And Judea was under a, a king, uh, one of the Herods. So when Herod uh, passed away, he divided his kingdom, which included all of Israel, to his sons. And one of his sons was king over Judea. And another one of his kings was uh, king over Galilee and the capitalist area. And that, we understand, is, was Philip. And that's why this uh, area up here got named Caesarea Philippi. It was after one of Herod's sons. And what we're going to read about is that these guys had kind of a loose relationship in Galilee. So the, the main commerce for the king didn't come from Galilee. It pretty much came from the Decapolis area. So these guys had kind of a, uh, an independent, uh, not necessarily a nation, but they had a lot of independence. Even though they were part of the Roman Empire um, and Rome ruled it through these uh, Herod's descendants, Nonetheless, these guys kind of had a, a sense of independence. Uh, in Judea, there was less independence. And so uh, they basically had their own economy in the north. And people would eke out a living, but they were actually better off financially than a lot of the people in the south. So some of the rich folk had uh, summer condos up here on the Sea of Galilee. And, and that's this was the, uh, a nice area. Right, I'll say that. It was a nice area. And that's where uh, John and James and Peter and Andrew came from. And ultimately, as we zoom in here, we'll see that Jesus, who was born in uh, Bethlehem, so uh, down here in the bottom is Jerusalem, just a short way south of Jerusalem is, is Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And that's where Jesus was born, because that's uh, where David's um, family was from, through Boaz. You read the story of Ruth, and you find that, you know, the story of redemption, and uh, of Boaz, and, and he was from Bethlehem. So uh, he, Boaz was the grandfather of David, right? So, no, great-grandfather. It was... Uh, Obed, Jesse, and David. So uh, Jesus, because of this covenant that was made in Samuel, needed to come from Bethlehem. But you almost don't hear Bethlehem mentioned after the Christmas story, after Jesus' birth. Right? What happens is, is that um, Jesus was taken because of Herod the Great's uh, desire to be the only king. He wanted to kill anybody that could threaten his throne. So he had uh, people sent to actually execute when he heard that uh, the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem, according to scripture, according to you know the fulfillment of scripture. He sent people down from Jerusalem, that seven-mile march down to Bethlehem, and they killed the, the kids. Well, Joseph was told about this. Joseph, uh, Jesus' um, human stepfather. And so... A lot of times I think of, you know, if we put these guys' names in, uh, in our language today, he would have been 
uh, Josh Josephson and uh, Peter would have been Rocky Johnson and you know, all these great names. You know, I can just imagine all these guys hanging out, leather jackets. Uh, anyway, Joseph went down to Egypt for a period of time until Herod passed away and then he came back and he settled in this area of Nazareth in Galilee because this was a place where you could actually make a living. And there was a mix of Roman towns that had a very good established uh, economy with kind of native uh, Jewish towns. Um, and Nazareth was one of those that was near other uh, main commerce towns. And the same thing is true with Capernaum. Um, if the main trade route comes down through here, through this valley, it comes right by Capernaum. And one of the ways of, of getting around the Sea of Galilee was to come out and take a wrap down uh, through here to get to this valley and then jump into the Jordan River Valley. Or sometimes they would come through this uh, cut here. But usually they would come down. This mountain right here is, is Mount Tabor. Um, and so, or right here. And so what happens is, is that Jesus grew up in a place that was just rich in uh, Jewish history, in Hebrew history. And so he learned all of these different things as he's having uh, his playground, essentially, is the Jezreel Valley and uh, this area up here in the Sea of Galilee. Even though he wasn't a fisherman, he was a carpenter, he was associated with people that were doing commerce in those areas. So one of, when we read through John here in a little bit, what you're going to see is that Jesus, when he first comes uh, at the beginning of his ministry, he comes to John the Baptist down here in the Jordan River. So he comes from Nazareth down through this valley, comes down to this location right about here to be baptized. And he does that in order to be um, in accord with the declared law of God. Right? So he's going to fulfill the law. He's going to show uh, perfection of the law. He's going to complete it. And so he comes down here to be baptized. It's here that he actually meets this character that wrote this book. Um, and what happens is there's, there's a couple of Johns here. John the Baptist. Um, and then there's John, son of, son of Thunder. Um, John, son of Thunder, is a religious... Um, fishermen, just like Peter is a religious fisherman. They practice um, actively the, uh, the Jewish cultic practice, right? So they're going to keep the feasts, they're going to they're in, in many ways very zealous for the law, but they're not Pharisees because the Pharisees and the Sadducees hang out down here in the south and they're part of that uh, uh, religious practice around Jerusalem, but as, as close as they can get in Bethsaida, they're kind of, you know, really religious guys. Even though they're rough and tumble, um, they actually take their faith seriously, or their religion seriously. And so John comes down here to uh, be baptized by John. John is being baptized by John. Uh, so John, son of thunder, comes down to John the Baptist, and he hangs out with John the Baptist for a while to be baptized. And that's one of the things we're going to read. That's the first part of the revelation here. And it's there that he runs into Jesus. Right? And something happens. And that's what we're going to find out what happens. So the who in this story is John. Son of Thunder. He's a, a fisherman. Um, and in that sense, he has a very simple understanding of the world. Right? He's not a rocket scientist. He hasn't had schooling. Um, the schooling that he's had has been primarily by going to the synagogue, which happened here at Capernaum. And so they would do a, a journey from Bethsaida to Capernaum either by boat, which is often the way that they would go because they were fishermen, um, or you could also do it by land, which is a little bit more uh, treacherous. So he lived in Bethsaida then? He lived, John lived in Bethsaida. But he would have gone to Capernaum because that's where you would do all of your sales and stuff like that. Um, and in that sense, he was a very, his, his only schooling would have been in synagogue as a Jewish boy. So he was a very simple fisherman. Um, he was very religious in the sense of he took the uh, Hebrew uh, religious practice very seriously. Um, he's a brother of James, um, as uh, 
Alan mentioned he's a very spirited young man. They were called the Sons of Thunder, so these are guys you don't want to mess with. And he was actually the longest lived of Jesus' disciples that actually were eyewitnesses of Jesus all the way through his ministry. So of what we call the Twelve, he was the last one to pass away. So he lived a long time. He actually lived until probably the end of that century. So it's the first century A.D., um, he would have passed away somewhere around the end of the century. Um, he's also called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yep. Um, so one of the things when we look at the structure of the Gospel of John um, is actually written in sections. A lot of times, you know, the way we think about things today is if somebody's going to write a novel, right, in many ways, John's like a novel. What they would do is they would go up to the mountains with their, you know, they don't use typewriters anymore. <laughs> They're a laptop. And they'd sit out on the porch drinking coffee, whacking away words, right? And they would wordsmith a work, and then they submit it to their publisher. Actually, what happened is, is that John was a, a member of a church. He was an elder. And uh, in the role of an elder, he was uh, not only an eyewitness, he was a teaching elder, and there was certain... Uh, problems within the church that were coming up, heresy. And uh, it had to do about understanding who Jesus is, about his divinity. And the, the, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. We, you know, we think we struggle with the Trinity. Can you imagine what it is to struggle with the divinity of the guy that you sat and, and had coffee with? Right? Understanding that he's the one that's actually sitting on the throne in heaven. You saw him ascend and descend. So you're an eyewitness to all of the um, miracles, the supernatural that occurred when God entered into history. Um, and trying to get your head around how can a man be God? Right? How can one born as a baby, a simple carpenter in Nazareth, uh, actually be Messiah in the sense of divine. Especially since a lot of the, the culture of Galilee area was uh, very um, Hellenistic. So it was highly influenced by Greek philosophy. And one of the things that the Greek philosophy said is that spirit and matter never actually meet. And so they had to, one of the heresies of the day was they had to figure out how could God actually enter into history? Well, he couldn't, right? So they came up with what they called a series of emanations. God being less God until he could actually become a corrupted human. That's called Gnosticism. And so that was occurring in John's church. People had a misunderstanding about who God was. And it wasn't just in his church, it was in the whole culture around. So John wrote the body of work as a teaching against Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a, is a belief in... Gnosticism nothing, is a belief where people misunderstand the nature of Christ. What's and, and I would say that this isn't only that, but it's that's one of the primary influences of the primary work here. Alan? Yeah, the, the Gnostics are big on the whole idea of knowledge... But especially yeah. a secret knowledge, right? And they're, they're, they have a lot of books that would be the, the titles would be impossible. You get something like the Gospel of Judas. Well, if Judas hanged himself, right? Clearly, he didn't write anything, right? But that didn't really stop the Gnostics from coming up with titles like that. And right. there, it, it's very much. That Jesus is not an actual man. Right. He's not the, the closest character. thing that we would relate is that it's kind of like, you know, he's a hologram of some sort. Right. <laughs> that he can't truly be God in the flesh because it's just not possible according to that belief system, right? So I will take you to the key verse of John, chapter 20, verse 31. And keep this in mind as we go through John, because this is the organizing principle or theme of John. It's all about he's writing to help us understand who the Christ is. Right. So we look at, I'm going to back up to verse 30, 
in chapter 20, it says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So what we understand is that written in this book are the acts of Jesus as John observed them as an eyewitness. So this is an eyewitness account of what Jesus did and what he said. He says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to completely unpack that as we move through the Gospel of John. But this is about who Christ is and what belief in him means, what it looks like to truly be a Christian. And so we're going to see people struggle with this idea of who Christ is. We're going to see Nicodemus struggle with it. We're going to see the woman at the well struggle with it. We're going to see the people who wanted a Burger King struggle with it. Right? The story of the Burger King is Jesus feeds a bunch of people and then they come after him and say, hey, keep feeding us. And it's like, no, 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 I'm not the Burger King. I'm a different king. We're going to see the misunderstanding of Jesus as the true bread of life. The water of which um, there is no end. It's the refreshment of the Spirit. We're going to see um, Jesus finally stand before the very people that should know and should be turning to him in submission as king. The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and they're going to completely reject him, right? And all of this is to help us understand that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed, the Son of God. We need to understand that. And that believing you may have life in his name and that this life isn't just, you know, animation of my flesh. It just isn't just the blood running through my veins. It's more than that. It's real life. We understand in, in John 10.10, 10, Jesus said... Um, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I come that you might have life and have it to the full, or have it abundantly. So we're going to understand from reading this what that means, what that life is. That's what John's about. And he wrote this primary uh, part of the text as a refutation, or not necessarily a refutation. He's not refuting the Gnostics. Rather, he's setting down the account. This is the truth as I have seen it and it has been revealed from God. So we should pay attention. And then what happened is, is uh, one of the who, what, why, when, where questions is, is, is when was this written? Um, I'm going to suggest, especially since I'm out of time and I have to count the audience, that John was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in 70 AD. In fact, it was probably written around 50 AD, which gives you an idea of how quickly um, heresy entered into the church. And that it is, uh, well, no, not 50, that would be bad. Um, that it was written before the destruction of the temple. Or it could have been written later than that. But if it was written um, before the destruction of the temple, Peter and Paul would have, been, uh, would have been martyred in Rome by Nero. And so the epilogue, the end of John, is to help people understand how the faith continues in the absence of its leaders, of uh, Peter and Paul. And so that's why we have this account where he's called the beloved disciple and, and Peter uh, has this uh, period of being restored uh, because he denied Christ three times and Christ you know, commissions him three times and that whole deal. Um, that part was written later after the main body of this teaching, which came much earlier in the church, um, in order to kind of help people understand that, no, God's redemptive plan is still going. And the prologue was written also after the main body of this work. So when we look at uh, chapter 1 through verse 18, um, that prologue was added on significantly later. And it was added on specifically to have a very pointed statement against Gnosticism. Um, but then the main body of work, which we'll pick up in uh, verse 19 of chapter 1, um, was written earlier. Yes? Yeah, um, Dave, real quick, why did one of the disciples, since you were describing Nazareth, um, why did they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? I, mean, I thought it was a fruitful area. And... Right. 
So, um, and, and we are out of time, but I'll give a quick answer. So, Nazareth, although it was a very insignificant town, um, and it, there was nothing prophesied about Nazareth, right? And so the statement is, well, a prophet can't come out of Nazareth, although Jonah actually came out of this area around Nazareth. So uh, Jesus refutes that. But it had to do with that this was a small, insignificant village, even though it was around uh, places of influence. Helen? Uh, Isaiah says that the Messiah is going to be a branch. And Matthew is fond of puns. And Nazareth and Netzer being the word for branch. Right. It, he's making a pun when he says he'll be called a Nazarene. Right. He's a Netzer. Yeah. And so we're going to see a lot of play. Uh, so one of the things, even though John was really simple, we're going to see a lot of very profound theology and tie to uh, prophetic utterance. Because John wants us to understand that Jesus is the Christ. He is the branch. He is the fulfillment of covenant and promise. Let's go ahead and uh, there's a, obviously we didn't, we didn't even really get into uh, the where question or the when question very well. So uh, we'll pick that up next week. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for uh, opportunity to come again into uh, your presence. And uh, as we do every day, it's never that we're out of your presence. We know that you're with us always, as we read in the 139th Psalm. And that you know um, our thoughts before we think them. And Lord, uh, that you love us deeper than we can possibly know. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you as we progress through uh, a series of studies that we come to your uh, gospel preserved through John. And that, uh, Lord, we just ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to really hear what you have to say to us. I know many in this room have studied through John many times. And Lord, uh, help it be a, a deeper and richer experience every time that we come to your word. Help us truly be refreshed and um, our wells be made full with, with you, the living water, Lord. We thank you for this. Um, we ask that you go with us this week, that you protect us, that you provide for us. Lord, we thank you for your service. Please enable us for service. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.